Coming up on Stu Does America. No matter what you call the virus, the Chinese government made it worse. And we can't forget that. We talked to Catherine Price about how to stay sane in the middle of our very own societal meltdown. And Peter Schweizer joins us to talk about senators who might just be taking a little bit of advantage of this crisis by lining their pockets. Thanks for being here. I know this is a weird time for everyone, and I can promise you it is a freaking weird time to start a brand new show. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Uh, my thought is that we should try to continue to bring you, you know, smart analysis, dumb jokes, and only occasionally the opposite. So we'll try to get that uh, done and help you through it. If you like that approach, please click subscribe, rate five stars, review the podcast. I smile every time I see another review with the phrase, it's great, whatever. Be sure to click the notification bell on YouTube. And if you have the means, subscribe to blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus, you save 10 bucks and you're supporting a media source that will actually stand up and call out the media lies. One more show and then we all get to go home for the weekend. Yay. Stu does America. Well, you know, when times are tough, you need to bring in the best experts. That's why Donald Trump has Dr. Anthony Fauci, right? It's also why CNN has Sean Penn. You might think, wait a minute, Sean Penn is a good actor, but he's not an expert on how to stop a pandemic. But let me prove you wrong. Not on the pandemic part, but on the good actor part. My evidence, the movie Crackers. I now present to you the entire trailer. From Louis Maul, director of Atlantic City, comes a motion picture comedy about a fun-loving bunch that are out of luck, out of line, out to lunch, and into larceny. Donald Sutherland, Jack Warden, and Sean Penn. They're crackers. And with a combination like that, nobody's safe is safe. You get it? Nobody's safe. Is safe. From the director of Atlantic City, though, so you know it's got to be good. Now, before you go off of this show to go watch Crackers, you should know that somehow this movie was not received well. On Rotten Tomatoes, it scored a crisp 0%. The New York Times review said two performances stand out, Christine Baranski and Tasha Valenza. In every other way, this movie is a mistake. (laughs) That's a solid review. In fact, the only time Sean Penn was mentioned was this. Sean Penn as a dull-witted electrician. I mean, it's a bit rude to electricians. Amazingly, in all the lengthy ranting on CNN about how to manage an ongoing crisis, Approximately zero questions were asked about something that Sean Penn is an expert on. Socialist and communist regimes that kill a bunch of people. And that's what I want to get into tonight. I don't want to spend a lot of time on whether we should be calling it COVID-19 or the coronavirus. All right, gosh, Sean, leave me alone. Go away. The coronavirus or the Wuhan virus, whatever. I don't want to get into any of that anymore. Especially when, do we really need Sean still there? Is he, is he just going to hang out here the whole show? Is he the co-host? You're just going to leave them there, aren't you? I think everybody else, everybody else went home. I'm the only expendable one left. Uh, this is an entirely manufactured controversy. We've talked about it already. <laughs> it all started when uh, Representative Gozar tweeted this. 
Hey, there he is. I am hey, announcing that I, uh, along with three of my senior staff, are officially under self-quarantine after sustained con uh, contact at CPAC with a person who has been hospitalized with the Wuhan virus. My office will be closed for the week. Gosh, that seems like a million years ago. The CPAC thing. I was at CPAC. I, I, that seems like that was another lifetime. Of course, it's completely ridiculous to say someone is racist for naming the place after the disease, uh, you know, where the disease, disease was discovered. But the response to this tweet set up a sort of social justice divider line. Once the woke police said it was racist, it was racist. And as many pointed out, the media had previously been identifying the virus by location all along. The Wuhan coronavirus has now surpassed the 2003 SARS outbreak. The first U.S. case of Chinese coronavirus was confirmed at her one of her hospitals. Inside that building is the world's first lab-grown copy of the Wuhan coronavirus outside mainland China. The Chinese coronavirus death toll has jumped to at least 26 people. The death toll from the Wuhan coronavirus spiked today. The Chinese virus, the coronavirus that is worrying the whole world. This comes as the Chinese coronavirus death toll has jumped to at least 26 people and sickened at least 835 people. Uh-oh. Now, look, it would be one thing for the media to say, yes, we called it the Wuhan virus, but then it got an official name and we started using it. And I think that's the right name to use, but it's not racism, obviously, to say the same thing we were saying two weeks ago. But that's not woke enough. The funny thing is that most people were calling it coronavirus or COVID-19 by then anyway. It wasn't even a controversy, but their fake outrage was so irritating, Donald Trump just started trolling them. The coronavirus, the White House coronavirus task force. Coronavirus. 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 The coronavirus. The coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Even Donald Trump wasn't calling it the Wuhan virus anymore. But the media falls for this stuff anyway. Trump is to the point that he's even just handwriting the word Chinese into his speeches. If you look really close, you can kind of see it uh, if you're watching on Blaze TV or we'll tweet it out or something. Maybe if you happen to be on podcast. The point is, these sorts of media games are a sometimes welcome, sometimes worthless distraction from important things going on in an urgent crisis. But no matter what you call the virus, it's crucial that the responsibility of the communist government of China is not forgotten. You would think that the media would be aligned in this mission, considering part of the problem was China throwing journalists from the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post and the New York Times out of the country when they were asking questions. They took a doctor who was trying to spread word about the virus. They denounced him. They lied about him and eventually let him die from the virus he was trying to warn about. In fact, the government cracked down on several doctors who tried to do the same thing. Anti-corruption activists that uh, called the Chinese government out for their suppressing of the truth of the virus were likely killed. At least, I don't know, mysteriously, they don't seem to be showing up for the book clubs anymore. The Chinese government has tried to squash the story about how they destroyed proof of the virus way back in December. And then when the truth about the virus could not be contained, China has gone on an extensive propaganda campaign, including claims that the virus was a project of the U.S. military. And when we try to help stop the disease, willingly sending in our world's top experts. 
early on, we offered to have America's finest experts travel there to assist them, to assist the World Health Organization. Uh, we weren't permitted in. Uh, these are the kind of things that the Chinese Communist Party has done that have put the world and the world's people at risk. They haven't been sufficiently transparent. And the risk, Sean, that you find, if we don't get this right, if we don't get to the bottom of this, is this could, uh, this could be something that's repeatable. Mm. It is repeatable. It has been repeated and it will be repeated again. Nothing is new in the world of communism. When the choice was human lives all around the globe or the protection of the, and the reputation of the state, at all costs, the Chinese government uh, came, down, came down on their own reputation. That's where they always side. The HBO series Chernobyl illustrated how the Soviet government made a very similar calculation. Sometimes we fall prey to fear that our faith in Soviet socialism will always be rewarded. Now, the state tells us the situation here is not dangerous. Have faith, comrades. The state tells us it wants to prevent a panic. Listen well. It's true. When the people see the police, they will be afraid. But it is my experience that when the people ask questions that are not in their own best interest, they should simply be told to keep their minds on their labor and leave matters of the state to the state. We seal off the city. No one leaves. And cut the phone lines. Contain the spread of misinformation. That is how we keep the people from undermining the fruits of their own labor. Yes, comrades. We will all be rewarded for what we do here tonight. This is our moment to shine. This is who we're dealing with. They don't care about the lives lost, and they certainly don't care about the truth. It's not surprising, but what should surprise us is the incredible lengths our own media will go to in service of their lies. As noted in the Washington Examiner, China brought the West time, the West squandered it, reads the headline to an opinion article published Friday in the New York Times. Earlier on Thursday, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow hosted reporter Donald McNeil, who explained that China has had enormous success in beating down its epi epidemic because of its advancements in healthcare technology, testing, and mandatory quarantines. There's an entire thread on Twitter that I've retweeted, at Stu Does America. If you don't follow me, I mean, what are you doing? It includes tons of examples of how our media, our media, took the Chinese government line in vilifying the travel ban from China. Here's one, the Trump administration's decision to ban most foreign nationals who had been in China the last two weeks from traveling to the United States amid an accelerating outbreak of the novel coronavirus there was preceded by calls for similar policies from conservative lawmakers and far-right supporters of the president. Public health experts, however, warn that the move could do more harm than good. Or this one, 
The evidence on travel bans for diseases like on coronavirus is clear. They don't work. They're political theater, not good public health policy. What are you, nuts? Experts, including Anthony Fauci himself, have told us that these restrictions were desperately needed and incredibly beneficial. But our media chose to tickle their woke sides and accept the PR pitch from the Chinese government. Now, the latest Chinese-friendly story, spread far and wide by our media, and which goes on to waste half of a press briefing about the coronavirus, is that Trump is a racist for calling it the Chinese virus. The sister story of that are anecdotal reports of people saying mean things to Chinese Americans in this country. To be absolutely clear, if you are harassing a Chinese American because of a virus that started in China, you are an idiot. But I find it hard to believe that literally anyone thinks the average Chinese person has any responsibility for this. They obviously don't. In fact, they were the first victims of it in China. But the Chinese government doesn't deserve blame um, for you know, misleading our media. That's, that's our media that deserves the blame for that. They do deserve blame, however, for making this much, much worse. And if our media is going to ignore that and then parrot the propaganda of the Chinese government and help shift blame for this virus to our soldiers, then in this instance, they really are acting like the enemy of the people. This shouldn't be difficult, guys. In fact, it should be easy, so easy that even Sean Penn could figure it out. Catherine Price is a science journalist and author of How to Break Up with Your Phone, as well as the creator of Screen Life Balance, which is currently running a quarantine challenge. We're going to hear about more in just a moment. First, I can exclusively reveal the uh, title of Catherine's forthcoming book called Living Outside Myself, Why I Keep Doing Interviews on Stubergear's TV Shows Where My Head is on a Man's Body. It's a good title. Catherine, welcome back. Stu, thank you. I'm so grateful that you just came up with that idea for me because it's true. This, I think, is the third time I've I've had someone gesticulating on my behalf, and it just gets more enjoyable every time. So, thank you. You're you're welcome, of course. Um, you uh, you're in the middle of doing something very interesting, and it's it's very central to my current struggles, which is I, I screen life balance right now in the middle of this. Uh, that is a difficult ask. Yes. So we are in a tough time, everyone, in case you haven't noticed that. It's really stressful. And I, yeah, I've spent the past couple of years thinking about this subject of what I call screen life balance, which is about becoming more intentional about how we use screens and our phones in our daily life. And right now it's really hard because in normal times, our screens are really attractive and pull us in and are designed to make us want to spend lots of time on, for example, social media or the news. But when you have this situation, it becomes extremely more difficult or much more difficult, by which I mean you simultaneously have this mass slowdown where all of us are suddenly not at work the way we used to be. We may be extremely busy, especially if we've got children to take care of, but there's a big difference in, in our daily lives right now. And you've got that coupled with a genuine reason to feel anxious. So it, typically when people have a slowdown or a disruption, they often will turn as a coping strategy to their phones and to the news and just to something to distract them or to make them feel more certain and in control. And unfortunately, if you turn to the news in particular right now, you're going to feel even 
less in control. And so something I've been working on a lot myself and trying to help others with is the idea of how do you stay informed to the point where it's useful, but also not drive yourself absolutely crazy. And what's more, how is it possible, and is it possible, which I believe it is, to take this current situation, which has a lot of very bad stuff about it, but maybe try to use it as a chance to create something positive for ourselves, a sense of community, an opportunity for creativity something that make that we can do that's more productive than spending our spare moments just checking and rechecking and rechecking the news. Mm, yeah, you know, I, I read How to Break Up your, With Your Phone, which is a great book. If, if you have this, you struggle with this type of thing, it's a fantastic resource because it explains all the science behind why you're doing what you're doing and also a really a detailed plan uh, on how to stop doing it. And I, you know, I I did a lot of it. I did uh, even up to turning my phone black and white, which is one of the things that you actually can recommend and show you how to do, which takes away sort of the attractiveness of the phone visually. Uh, I will say, though, in the middle of this, um, I broke up with my phone, but I'm back with my ex. And I'm I'm concerned about how exactly to turn that around, because in the middle of this, you know, you almost feel like you have a duty to be checking the news. You probably don't, but that's the way it feels. Yes, I think that pretty much everyone is struggling with this issue right now. I've heard from tons of readers myself who have said exactly what you've said, which is like, great, I'd broken up with my phone. I had a great relationship with it. And now I'm on the rebound. I feel horrible and I don't know what to do. So I put together some suggestions for people about how to create a better relationship with the news in particular, which I can go into. And I also decided to try to channel. Apparently, I deal with stress by having an insane number of ideas in my head that I feel the need to somehow, I don't know, act on. And I realized that I could group them all together in what I'm calling the quarantine challenge. The idea of which is being isolated does not mean that we have to feel apart. And it's it's a series of um, regular newsletters that I send out with suggestions and ideas for coping strategies, ways to stay sane. I'm doing live Zoom calls with readers. Um, the subject of Monday's call, which is at 4 p.m. Eastern, is actually how to stay sane with all the news, like things you can do. So I hope your viewers will check it out. You can see information at screenlifebalance.com. But just to give you a sense of some of the things that I've been doing to actually I already had been doing, but I think they're even more important now in terms of the news, is to become much more intentional about it. So take a step back, take a deep breath, if it's possible, and ask yourself, how often do you actually want slash need to check the news? And what sources are you going to turn to? Because everything is about coronavirus right now. And there's a lot that's unknown. So I'd be very careful about what your sources are, you know, maybe start with the CDC, that's a good one, or the World Health Organization, something that's very top level. Maybe pick one local source in case there's something relevant for your particular situation, like an impending shutdown or information about what businesses are open, things like that. And then ask yourself, what do I actually, how often do I want to check this today and for how long? And actually think about it. That doesn't mean you'll necessarily stick with what you identify as your goal, but if you don't even identify the goal, there's no way you're going to. And the result then is going to be that anytime you feel a twinge of anxiety, which you will, you're going to turn to your phone or to the news. And that is going to do two things to you. First, when we get bits of new information, it tells us that whatever we just did was worth doing again. So you're going to get new information or new someone, I don't know, someone talking about it actually might not be new information, but you'll get somebody talking about it. So you're actually going to biochemically be training yourself to get into this compulsive checking cycle. But at the same time, that information is actually not calming. 
So it's going to make you stressed out. And when you feel stress and you actually release stress hormones, you want to get rid of that stress. So you're going to end up trying to alleviate the stress by just going back to whatever habit is top of mind. And in this case, it's checking the news. So you can understand when you start thinking about it biochemically, why we are all checking and checking and checking. It's our brains are doing things without us even realizing what we're doing. So one way to break that cycle is, as I said, to really identify ahead of time what you want to do. Another suggestion I would have is to minimize, if not eliminate, news notifications because you're going to get a ton of them. And every time you hear that ding, I'm guaranteeing you it's not going to be a story about puppies right now. It's going to be something stressful. And you have to think to yourself, which of these notifications are actually things I can take action on or that make me feel better? Chances are most of them will not fit into either of those categories. So you should turn them off for now and resort to or rely on this personal strategy that we just identified or that you just identified for yourself. I also recommend going even further and deleting news apps from your phone, which may sound drastic, but you can always reinstall them. This could be a 10-minute check for yourself or experiment. Because the thing is that our phones give us such easy access to news constantly that it's kind of like mainlining anxiety. I'm not saying you shouldn't check the news, but I would recommend trying to do it from your desktop computer, trying to do it via an actual television show, and again, do it in small doses. And then another suggestion I have that is extremely important for any kind of habit you're trying to change, whether it's checking the news or compulsively using social media, whatever, is you have to give yourself an alternative. Because if you don't give yourself an alternative, you're just going to fall back into your normal habits anytime you get stressed out. The prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that actually is rational and makes smart decisions for you, goes offline when we're stressed out. So you are going to end up back on your phone unless you kind of help your prefrontal cortex by, for example, putting a book on your bedside table and charging your phone out of the room. If you're worried about missing an important call, just turn the ringer on, but try to get it out of the room. Another thing I really like is to, <laughs> I bought this crazy planner. It's called a goal crazy planner that makes you every morning write down a few things you're grateful for, a couple affirmations, you know, like I am healthy and I'm worth it. I don't know. You can make up what your, your affirmation is, but then importantly asks you to identify a primary goal for the day and have a bullet plan. And I think that's really useful now. And then at the end of the day, you do something similar and you try to say, okay, what was a positive sentence to describe today? And what were my best moments from today? And I don't know if that might sound like new agey and cheesy, but it's actually scientifically proven to change the way that you, you, you experience, like it will make you happier and less stressed. And importantly, anything that makes you less stressed will actually boost your immunity. So there's actually a scientific reason to try to do things that really do make you feel better. It's not frivolous at all. So personally, I really found it useful to say, okay, today, bullet plan, I don't know, get out of my pajamas. <laughs> That's a good one. You know, then I'm going to work on a piece of writing or on this quarantine challenge. Um, but I think that if you get into a daily practice of setting your intentions for the day and giving yourself a focus on positivity, you'll at least give yourself five minutes at the beginning of the end of the day where you feel a little bit more calm and grounded. Because it's really weird. I mean, if you think about it, if you do not check the news and you look outside right now, it's springtime. Like I live in Philadelphia. It's very disconcerting to look out my window and see a crab apple tree in bloom and then realize we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And obviously I need to pay attention to the pandemic, but I think it's also important for me to pay attention to that apple tree because it's beautiful and it's calming to look at. And uh, lastly, in my monologue, um, <laughs> we have a time delay, which is part of the reason I'm just rambling on, <laughs> is try to do things that build community 
And in terms of how to use your screens, I really recommend thinking about your screen time in three categories. You've got consumption, creation, and connection or community, right? And, And consumption would be things like watching Netflix or a movie or whatever. And I think that's totally fine if you decide that's going to soothe you in the moment. But be aware that consumption, when you binge it, is going to feel like junk food. So you probably don't want to have your screen diet, as it were, rely too heavily on just that consumption. The creative, the creativity and the community, I think, is where people can actually really, um, I was going to say have fun. I guess I do mean that, exploring in this time, because there's a lot of ways to share your coping strategies with people or host events that actually bring people together. You thankfully have my head on someone else's body right now, because if you could see the rest of my body, you'd see I'm wearing workout pants. And the reason I'm wearing those is because my husband and I have been hosting daily uh, (laughs) story times and mini dance parties for our kids' classmates via Zoom. And so at 4.30 every day, we've had a group of people join us online and we have done a story and a song and then we've picked a you know thematic song for the day today was dancing by myself but in the past it was the end of the world as we know it uh by rem and uh (laughs) shake it off anything that's really upbeat and fun to dance to and we have had a dance party in our living room and i have to say that it's been about 15 minutes total and the and the at the end of it i am physically relaxed it gets me out of my head and i have a momentary sense of joy in the midst of all of this so hmm. i think that's a wonderful use of our screens and it's the kind of thing i really encourage so those are just some thoughts but um but again i was really inspired to try to do what i can to bring people together in this time and create some sort of inspiration and calm and maybe even joy and connection um to help people treat this as a chance as much as possible to reset and do something nourishing for themselves. And yeah, I just hope if viewers are interested, check out screenlifebalance.com and the quarantine challenge. And my hope is that we can create an enormous global community of people who are, I don't know, like finding some way to stay sane and um, connected during this time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, that's, it's tons of great information in there. And, and I, you know, as a, as a person who's, I, I cause I, I'm, I'm a. I'm in the middle of a. Like a it's stressful going through this, especially. I mean, partially because being in the news business, right? You know, you, you're constantly needing to be updated on that. But you can do it in a much more rational, healthy way. And I think you, you point this out in the book um, many times: is that an idea of it being intentional, just just making the decision, even if it's not even a good decision. At least you're making a decision. The decision isn't like making, you know, changing your habits for you. Um, you go into that as well. And I and I we're we're gonna we're kind of long on time. I know we have we have this little bit of a delay here, and I appreciate you uh, going through all of that. It's ScreenLifeBalance.com is the place to go. Um, and right, is that ScreenLifeBalance.com? Um, um, I've seen this thing on, on Twitter, not because yes. I was refreshing yes. my phone constantly, I swear, even though I was. But they said, um, uh, you're, we're either going to come out of this thing 25 pounds lighter or 40 pounds heavier. Uh, right now, I'm going 40 pounds heavier. I'm going that way. I'm going to try to reverse this with your help. Uh, you can get in part of the quarantine challenge uh, with Catherine Price. It's a great thing. And, you know, look, this is going to be a this is a difficult change for everybody. And I think if you can kind of take a moment to think about how this next few weeks is going to actually happen. It's really going to benefit you when we do come out of this and we will, and we will Catherine price screenlifebalance.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there and uh, join up with the quarantine challenge. It's a really good idea here as we kind of go through this, this magical new world uh, together. Catherine, thanks so much for coming on the program. 
Thank you. All right, back in a second. We live in scary times, right? Um, not everybody believes that, though. A lot of people still think this isn't going to be a big deal. It's a little bit overhyped. Let me give you one piece of data that I think will change your mind on this. How serious is this? Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo have both publicly, effusively praised Donald Trump. Think about that for a minute. Think about what would make them do that. It's not because they like Donald Trump. It's not because they're not, a, like, they're totally, totally, in a normal circumstance, would just be lying about him, saying anything, right? But here they are, out in front of cameras, effusively praising the guy. Why are they doing that? Well, they want all the resources, and they don't want to piss Donald Trump off. That's the reason why they're saying it. And, you know, they may also think he's doing a really good job. But even if they believe that in any other circumstance, they wouldn't be saying it publicly. They would say, oh, he's the worst guy in the world. They're saying publicly to cameras that he's a good guy. That should be scaring the hell out of you. Um, Newsom wrote a letter to Trump here saying that he believes in eight weeks, 56% of the California population, that's 25 and a half million people, will be infected with the virus uh, just in an eight-week period. So the good thing about this is we can check that, right? In eight weeks, we can come back and kind of look at it. Um, let me give you a couple other, other things, because the media loves saying how bad our testing is for coronavirus, and it did start out really slow. But we should also take a moment to realize how fast this has ramped up now that we've brought the private sector into this. Here's a uh, graph. Which one do we have first? I don't know. Here's, this is the total tests. Um, and if you're listening on podcasts, I'll explain it. But it does kind of look like a, a hockey stick, right? It's flat at the beginning. We don't have a lot of tests going on. And we've ramped this up to now over, uh, what is it, uh, 90,000 tests? Yeah, over 90,000 tests. I mean, that is a, uh, it's pretty fast we've been able to do that, really only in the past week and a half to two weeks, um, all of those tests. And if you go back about three days ago, you could read at Science uh, Magazine, had an article about you know, the really real success of the testing of South Korea. And they said they're, they're testing now an amazing 15,000 people per day. It is a lot. And they've done a, they were very early on this bandwagon. But look at what we're doing now here in the United States. This is the, the testing per day. This chart, it's a little bit, it's kind of the same shape, right? It starts very flat and then has a big slope up, a little bit more up and down. But generally speaking, the same sort of uh, shape. What's interesting about this is yesterday we did over 21,000 tests on Americans. 21,000. They were praising South Korea at 15,000. And yes, we're a bigger country. And yes, there's a lot of disclaimers on this when you want to talk about, um, you know, uh, that we started slow. And you can go through all that whole conversation. But the main thing is that people get pissed off when you say this. If you're getting angry because we're actually doing a good job testing, what is that saying about you? If it's just because you want to lose your little political argument, I mean, do you want that? Or do you want to actually have people tested so we know what's going on with this virus? We started off slow, it's true. But we've really stepped it up, as Americans kind of do. That's what's in World War II. We've kind of started slow, stepped it up. Back in a second. Some pretty disturbing news today about a possible insider trading scandal uh, from multiple members of Congress has put the spotlight on how elected officials are using their positions of influence to line their own pockets. Everybody knows the government is corrupt. No news uh, here on that. But no one knows it better than my next guest. I'm happy to welcome Peter Schweizer uh, back to the program. He's president of the Government Accountability Institute and the best-selling author of Profiles in Corruption, uh, Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elite. 
Peter, take us back in time to 2011. Your book comes out, Throw Them All Out, uh, a big interview on 60 Minutes, and changes the way our government operates. Can you walk the audience through how that uh, all un unfolded? Uh, sure, Stu. Great to be with you as always. Um, really, going back to uh, 2011, I published uh, Throw Them All Out, 60 Minutes, as you pointed out, did a story, and exposed the fact that members of Congress were trading stock on non-public material information. Um, this, of course, is illegal for the rest of us. It's not illegal for members of Congress. Uh, essentially, what happened um, is that they passed something called the Stock Act as a result. Um, the House made a big fanfare about it. The Senate made a big fanfare about it. And then, of course, Barack Obama had a Rose Garden ceremony. Everybody said, this is great. We fixed the problem. Uh, the Stock Act wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. Uh, but here's the problem, Stu. Um, about a year later, they gutted the bill. Uh, and for those people who believe that bipartisanship is dead in America, take note. In the House, uh, the Democrats held a voice vote to gut the bill. In the Senate, the Republicans held a voice vote to gut the bill. And the White House signed the bill in the dead of the night. So they basically weakened it. It's still technically illegal for members of Congress and their staff to engage in insider trading. Um, but the law is largely enforceable. And the reporting requirements have been so weakened that it's really hard to detect, do, to detect this uh, behavior uh, to begin with. Mm. And so can you kind of walk through how they how they weakened it? Because really, this was you're right, kind of portrayed as a big bipartisan moment where this is something that obviously should not be allowed. Right. They're going in for private secret briefing briefings uh, on you know some major event that they know is coming and they're able to buy or sell stock in advance of that to, to line their pockets. Everybody in America knows that's a terrible idea, with the exception, of course, of people in Congress who get to do it. And if you get to do it, it sounds pretty awesome. Uh, so they were able to uh, figure out um, a way to gut this. What exactly did they do to it? Uh, well, they did a couple of things. First of all, the reporting requirements were weakened. Um, so you have a situation where uh, before you were required to immediately disclose any stock transactions that you had. Uh, that's now been shortened, especially in the executive branch. It's it's uh, been weakened substantially. So I think it's only quarterly. Uh, but also the way the law is written now, uh, the presumption makes it very hard to prove insider trading. So to give you an example, um, if you are in the private sector, uh, and you have had, let's say, a series or a group of very, very successful trades. Um, it's very easy for prosecutors to say, well, we're going to subpoena your records. These trades were so good, we're suspicious that it's based on inside information because you could have had access to it, et cetera. Mm. Um, and that doesn't really apply to Congress. So you have a situation where the presumption is so heavy uh, on the side of prosecutors to demonstrate that it's insider trading that the law is basically ineffective. Um, and that's the problem. I mean, in the case that we're talking about now, um, particularly Senator Burr's case, it's so egregious. Uh, he, he, you know, had all these sell transactions, no purchase transactions, right after he had these briefings. He basically saved himself from a 30% loss uh, in the market. 
Um, to me, it reeks of insider trading, but uh, it's doubtful that we're going to see much out of this at all. He's referred it now to the Senate Ethics Committee, but Stu, that would basically be like you and me picking one of our siblings or a brother uh, to investigate this. So this issue is not going to be handled aggressively. He should resign. It should, it should be investigated by the Department of Justice, but it likely won't. Mm. Yeah, because this is a pretty interesting case, and it's just breaking if you haven't heard this already. Um, Burr had a briefing based on the dangers of, of coronavirus. He takes in this briefing. He, uh, he then publicly sort of downplays it. But in, in that period, he is selling stocks uh, and making and locking in these profits before you know, the, the stock market comes down and hits all of us in the head. Um, so it really is a, a pretty big scandal. Can you talk about um, not only uh, I think Burr, to me, at least my, my reading of this is Burr looks the worst out of everybody identified. It seems like they're trying to widen this to a bunch of people who really didn't have any uh, negative uh, uh, interactions here with the scandal. And then there's also the case of uh, Loeffler, who provided what I what, at least on the surface seemed like a pretty legitimate excuse as to why she was not guilty in this particular case. Can you kind of go through the players here? Absolutely, Stu. Um, yeah, I mean, I would share the opinion that the Burr one is particularly egregious, and here's why it's egregious. Like you said, he got these briefings on the 13th of February, I believe it is. He has 33 sell transactions where he sells all this stock. And when you look at this tr these transactions, um, it's stunning because his net worth is somewhere around $2 million. They report in ranges, so we don't precisely know what it is, but about $2 million. These stock transactions make up at least half of his entire net worth. Mm. So in other words, he's basically almost selling everything. That's pretty egregious. Um, he admits that, that uh, he participated in those sales, but he said it was based on public information, uh, which I think is laughable. Um, the other cases, the Loeffler case, um, it's not all sales. They were buying some stock. They were selling some stock. Uh, her husband's very wealthy. He's the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, the, uh, her assets are not in a blind trust. I believe that all senators should have their assets in a blind trust. Very few of them actually do. Uh, so the Loeffler one to me is a little bit more of a mixed case. But again, you have an elected official that has access to non-public information, and we're essentially left in this position where we're supposed to take their word for it that nothing untoward happened. Uh, would we take the word of a corporate executive who, you know, engaged in a bunch of stock transactions at very beneficial times? I don't think we should, uh, and I don't think we should with senators either. But it, it's not as bothersome as the Burr case. The other one that's interesting is Diane Feinstein, who's kind of played fast and loose here. Um, in her case, her defense has been that, yes, we sold stock, but uh, my assets are in a blind trust. Uh, now, that's true, but her husband's assets are not in a blind trust. <laughs> and the transactions we're talking about here actually involve her husband. Um, so uh, in that case, again, you've got buying and selling. But, you know, there has been reporting in the past concerning the Feinsteins involving government contracts and things that benefited her husband. So in the case of Diane Feinstein and her husband, Mr. Bloom, you have a longer history of questions raised about conflicts of interest and self-dealing. Mm. Uh, and, and my understanding of Loeffler, too, is that uh, she did, wasn't even alerted about these trades until after. And she does seem to have some paperwork to back that up. I'm sure that will be part of the investigation. And Feinstein, is, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear that one because I just wish 
these people in government were as creative with their jobs as they are as figuring out ways to lock in cash, man. I mean, this is pretty innovative. They got, they they really do push yeah. the envelope, and they're and they're really creative thinkers in this one area of their lives. But when it comes to making laws and you know getting rid of regulations, they're 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 not quite as good at it, are they? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, you talk about creativity. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has found a very sophisticated way to take payments um, from companies that end up in her pocket, and it's called IPO, uh, Initial Public Offerings of Stock. Uh, she has a history of this. We exposed it on 60 Minutes, where at that time, she had received eight different times IPO share of stock in company. So in other words, if somebody gave her a shoebox of cash, uh, that would be bribery, and they'd go to jail. But if somebody says we've got pre-IPO share of stock, we're going to give them to you, and this stock will be worth $100,000 when it goes public, and you only have to pay $2,000 for it. That's completely legal. So you're right. They get very creative about this stuff. And consider the flip side of this, Stu. In the, in the examples we're talking about right now in the U.S. Senate, we're talking about senators who are trying to protect themselves from losses. Consider the other side. This um, stimulus bill, bailing out companies, benefiting certain industries, the people who wrote it, the people who get to vote on it, they're all free to buy and sell stock in Boeing or, or airline companies, restaurant chains, whatever they want. It's outrageous. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. They should all be required to have their assets in blind trusts and be restricted from having any communication with the trustees other than getting their tax information. And if they're getting dividend payments, getting those dividend payments. That should be it. Mm. Now, I actually, I think, also be happy with them not being able to invest any of their money in stocks at all. And I know they're, they're individuals, they're human beings here, so they should have some rights to be able to build their retirement. But they're getting this giant pension anyway. If we're paying for this giant pension, maybe they should have to deal with whatever percentage they're getting in the bank account. Is that completely irrational? No, I mean, look, I think you can make that case. Uh, I like to think that I want our elected officials invested in, you know, the industry of America, that, uh, you know, as American economy does well, they're going to benefit. The problem is when they use this inside information. I think if you have a blind trust, uh, and that would be the best approach. I think at an absolute minimum, we should prevent senators and congressmen from at least uh, being able to buy stock um, in companies that are under the purview of their committee. I mean, if you're on the Senate Armed Services Committee, they buy and sell defense-related stocks all the time. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. It's absurd that they can. If you're rewriting health care, if you're changing the health insurance industry, you shouldn't be able to buy health care stocks, but they do. Um, these are the kind of things that would not be tolerated anywhere else, but because politicians get to write their own rules, Somehow it's acceptable and we allow it to happen. Mm. Peter Schweitzer, uh, author of Profiles in Corruption, Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elite. Also go back and, and read, if you haven't yet, throw them all out. And any Peter Schweitzer book is always worth your time. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Stu. All right, we're going to be back uh, here in a second. I, I got to say, like, I, I don't know. With this, with the way that the country is, is fired up right now, uh, it's possible Burr, if he really did this, is going to pay uh, some sort of price for it. I think he, you know, this is uh, it, it, Americans don't like in the middle of a crisis, you trying to take advantage of it. And so we'll see if there's any justice. I mean, maybe maybe we'll see it someday. Back in a second.
we're all the same. We all want to buy apocalypse-related clothing. But you have this thing in the back of your head that says, wait a minute, if I buy something that's apocalypse-related, what happens if the apocalypse passes? What's going to happen then? Well, that's why we have this T-shirt for you. It says, uh, sorry, can't make it, self-quarantined. So after the apocalypse, you can just use it to avoid annoying friends' parties or, I, you know, you want to go over, can you help me move? Sorry, can't make it, self-quarantined. You can get it at stewdoesmerch.com. Have a great weekend.